Welcome to the Spark Zen Podcast. Today, my guest is Ryushin Paul Howler, who served as the abiding abbot of City Center, the urban temple of San Francisco Zen Center from 2003 to 2012. Currently, Ryushin is the urban temple Dharma teacher at City Center in the Hayes Valley neighborhood of San Francisco. Ryushin has lived and practiced at San Francisco Zen Center since the 1970s. He received Dharma transmission from Sojin Mel Reitzman and has been teaching for more than 30 years. Originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland, Ryushin teaches throughout the US and Europe. So thank you Ryushin for joining me today to discuss what taking refuge means in Zen Buddhism. You're welcome, Heather. So let's just get to the heart of the matter. What does this phrase taking refuge mean for Zen Buddhists? Mm. Well, I think of it in a variety of ways. And, and maybe the, the first one I'd mention would be, we take refuge from and we take refuge in. So it's part of our human nature to want to suffer less in, in the variety of ways that suffering arises for us. I, th I think right along with that, we want to express the phrase I sometimes use is the nobility of spirit, that part of us that wants to do good, that wants to be of service, that, that wants to live an ethical life that has integrity. And, and then when I think of taking refuge from our suffering, that to me is the foundation of uh, Zen practice. And then take refuge in is the other part of the foundation, which is that we're expressing something of deep virtue and kindness, both to ourselves and to the whole world. What does it mean to take refuge from, from suffering? From the point of view of Zen training, I, I think there's two requests. One is to kind of stabilize, to settle, to become grounded in our own experience and presence, and then to see what are the habits, the mental, emotional, psychological, behavioral habits of who we are as a person, and then learn to be skillful with it, and then quite literally, in a very practical way, learn to cause less of a problem for ourselves and to be more skillful and help to promote our own well-being. And then the extension of that is that we bring the same quality of attention and benevolence to our relationships, to how we relate to the world, how we establish our priorities, and I think those of us who've been practicing a while know that, that that's a lifelong activity. It's not like you do it on a 10-day retreat <laughs> and then you're done. Well, since you mentioned stabilize and settling, of course, as a Zen practitioner myself, what arose was this image of sitting in meditation. Would you just Talk a little bit about the uh, connection between taking refuge from suffering or taking refuge in general and meditating. 
But I, I think Zazen, in, in the Zen tradition, it covers seated meditation, but it also addresses an expression of engagement in the present moment. And that engagement can happen through seated meditation, through walking meditation, through engaging in activity and in relating to others. They can all have a quality of presence and awareness that we can call their expressions of zazen. A phrase that we often use is having zazen mind in everyday activity. Yes. And I guess in a way that would be then the ability to take refuge each moment, whether we're brushing our teeth, walking down the street, speaking with a friend or a colleague. And, and in, in, traditionally in Buddhism, the, 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 there's one designation of taking refuge, which is a singularity in contrast to taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, like a threefold refuge. There, there's a way in traditional Buddhism where refuge is considered a single thing, like we could call it the vow of practice. And the three refuges are the three jewels, taking refuge in Buddha, taking refuge in Dharma, and taking refuge in Sangha. Yes. And what does this mean to you, the first refuge, taking refuge in Buddha? Let, let me answer it this way. You know, over the years, somehow or another, without quite intending it, you, you know, when I lead a retreat or a sashin, each evening we would end the evening by chanting the refuges. Because some of the, the participants in the retreat hadn't had much experience with taking refuge, I would describe it I would challenge myself each time to say something different. Well, say, how many ways did you come up with describing it? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know because I'm still in the process. But I, I, I would say I've described it at least in 50 different ways. <laughs> and do you have any memory of one description that might have been more resonant for people or piqued their interest or clarified? their idea of refuge? I think the one that resonates with Zen practitioners is that Buddha mind is, is something we all, um, we all innately have and that our practice is about connecting to it, clarifying it, and letting it pervade our whole life. And I think of that as taking refuge in Buddha. The word refuge does mean in the kanji of Japanese, key, right? Homecoming or returning to your true self. Yes. Which is what you mentioned about Buddha mind pervading um, all beings. Yes, that's correct. And in one way to unpack this phrase is also to understand it that this is an embodied practice, right? Taking refuge in the Buddha is learning how to embody incorporating our refuge in the great way each moment in our body. Could you talk a little bit about, as so often my teacher said to me, this is Zen is a body practice, right? 
the understanding in a in our bones and marrow of taking refuge i think it's important that when we designate you know our body our mind our emotions our psychological makeup that all these are dynamic aspects of being and and they interplay you know we can talk about them as if they were separate but in no way are they separate when we have a strong emotion it it resonates through our body it affects our psychological makeup of the moment there is a way and and i think of it more as psychosomatic that the the energy of our emotions at a particular time are registering and reverberating in a somatic way and and that integrity settledness ease openness availability that that can have a pronounced expression in our somatic being so that's how i would describe taking refuge as a physical event it's also interesting to me as you're mentioning this as a physical event that in our our morning service in our soto zen liturgy when we say i take refuge in buddha we actually prostrate right? yes what what is your sense of that taking refuge in buddha and prostrating before all beings to to me the way you just rephrased it leaving out the i i i think even though it's just a linguistic play of words it can have a significance you know like taking refuge in being it's like a giving over it's like a coming home and adding in this physical activity of lowering our body down and touching the earth you know with our forehead and holding up our hands that we we venerating the innate nobility of spirit the buddha mind our buddha consciousness and and that the the prostration it engages our whole body and then that through its connectedness engages our mind engages our sense of uh, psychological being and that we lower that down and we touch it in a profound way and then we raise it back up you know we we sort of go to the foundation and then we go back to uprightness to being present in the world in a way that we can trust i think that's one of the things the evolutions or transformations that happens for us is that as we become more deeply connected to the sense of being that we are we also increase our capacity to meet the world as it is and i think of all that as the process of taking refuge and there's a deep teaching in it and that's taking refuge in dharma and it's interconnected it's relational and that's taking refuge in sangha and 
just for clarity's sake or explication, our Soto Zen morning liturgy, the translation that we use is I take refuge in Buddha before all beings, immersing body and mind deeply in the way, awakening true mind. Let's talk about the last phrase, awakening true mind, awakening this Buddha mind that you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. How is this unsurpassable mind awakened through our, through our vow and through our practice on the meditation cushion or walking meditation and off the cushion in everyday activity? Well, deep within us, there is the impulse to live. And the extension of that is the impulse to thrive, the impulse to express our being, to relate to others, to relate to all existence, to relate to ec the ecology of the whole planet. And, and that as we relate in that way, we discover true being. When we isolate into me as, as something that needs to be defended and given priority, it, it distorts the natural order of existence, which is it's all dynamic and it's all interrelated. And as we settle down, and, and get over that fixation of me, we awaken true mind. Okomura Roshi, in his book, Living by Vow, he uses this phrase, which I think you'll, you'll uh, resonate with. We awaken the awakening mind in order to wake up. It reminds me of my catchphrase, experience the experience that's being experienced. The reason that to me they, they seem similar is that we're not trying to manufacture something that isn't already present. We're just trying to open and connect and awaken to what's already present. Well, how is it that we separate from the experience that's being experienced? We insist that it's about me. <laughs> and it's about me getting what I want and me avoiding what I don't want. And how do you feel that practicing meditation, whether it's seated or walking or lying down, how do you feel that that helps us with experiencing the experience that's being experienced, awaking this true mind or unsurpassable Buddha mind? For us as human beings, Usually, de deliberate experiencing is preceded by some kind of intellectual formulation. And, and I think that formulation, that intentionality, th that resolve, I think that's a development from an intellectual formulation to an intention to a resolve. I think that process is what draws us into opening up to what's happening. I think, you know, you, there are certain Buddhist texts that will say that's taking refuge. 
just sitting and stopping or paying attention if you're in motion that mm -hmm. is taking refuge dropping discursive thinking letting go of our fascination with what's arising in the mind having an experience of mind consciousness pervading the body usually there's a progression for us you usually we cultivate experiencing the sensate what, what arises at each of the sense doors, hearing, seeing, smelling, and touching. And then from that elemental position, then we start to include the mind that's thinking. Then we include the content of thinking. Then we include emotions. Then we include awareness of certain behaviors. And then as we do that, we start to see that all of existence is taking refuge, that we can condense it into do what you're doing, be what you're being, that, that there's something extraordinarily straightforward about it that isn't sophisticated. It's just fundamental to being alive. Let's move on to the next refuge, which I understand is not separate from the first one or the third one mm -hmm. the refuge i take refuge in dharma before all beings entering deeply the merciful ocean of buddha's way yeah. it's hard for me to repeat it without going into my chanting voice <laughs> yeah. i know the feeling <laughs> there's many ways to think about it you know, one is in the context of cultivation awareness, that there's things we learn as we endeavor in that cultivation of awareness. We learn how to give attention. We, we learn how to have open presence. We, we learn how to um, direct attention. And at the same time, be open to whatever comes up. And we learn from what that creates. We learn who we are as a person. We, we learn how to relate to it. We learn how to relate to others. I would say, initially, there's a kind of unlearning, unlearning the obsessions of mind, trying to get what it wants and avoid what it doesn't want. And then that makes space for this new learning. And this will the the Dharma, of course, being the Buddha's teaching, and also the reality of all beings, and entering deeply the merciful ocean of Buddha's way. Yeah. How do you understand this refuge? The word merciful, you know, is 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 really a combination of kindness, compassion, and virtue. And, and when you put the three of them together, you, you get an attitude of benevolence. This practice that we're doing is actually to help us to suffer less and be happier more often. You know, it, it, it has a profound benevolence in relationship to the human condition. And the happier we are, and the more 
uh, space we have for what's arising for us and the less suffering that's happening for us, then that radiates out and has a sometimes tangible and sometimes intangible effect on those around us. Yeah, exactly. As I heard one Dharma teacher put it once, he said, and when I do this, I'm less grumpy. And when I'm less grumpy, everybody who has to deal with me is happier. (laughs) (laughs) And one way to understand this, I take refuge in Dharma, that we value the Dharma and our vow more than we value our karmic conditioning. Maybe value is not the right word. I often say giving over to the Dharma in contrast to being stuck in our karma. And so taking refuge in Dharma, it can be learning how to do that. It can be the teachings of the sages, Shakyamuni Buddha, and all the other great sages. And I would say, not just of the Zen tradition or even the Buddhist tradition, but this is part of human wisdom. We can discover expressions of, of the Dharma in many traditions. And that brings us to the third refuge, which is I take refuge in Sangha before all beings, bringing harmony to everyone free from hindrance. When I read that, I think it's uh, quite the ideal (laughs) to say that we're going to bring harmony to everyone and there won't be any discord or we'll be free from hindrance. What's your understanding of this phrase, free from hindrance? Is that taken literally or is it some deeper meaning what is, what is going to be free from hindrance or how will we be freed from hindrance? Once at the city center, there was someone who made videos and she made video of someone who'd been a white supremacist. And then he fell in love with someone who was of Mexican descent. Mm. And the love dissipated the hate in a way we could say. The hatefulness sort of set up a certain world. It it set up a certain separation, you know. It it labeled people and it justified hate. And then when one of those people who was in the hateable category, when the person fell in love with them, (laughs) they couldn't persist with the hatefulness it just sort of dissipated, the hindrance of hatefulness dissipated. And, and I think in a way, that's the process of practice. That as, as we learn to go beyond our own fixed ideas and fixed judgments and experience things just as they are, experience each other just as we are, you know, and have some insight and compassion for, oh, yes, we're all suffering in our own way, and and we're all exhibiting our hindrances, and then how do we go beyond it? And if we are taking refuge in Buddha, taking refuge in the teaching of Buddha, those two refuges help us also see through the barriers of mind 
so that the, that karmic conditioning can fall away or at least be seen through. I know it's a gradual forever process so that we do see people like you're saying and ourselves first, right? Those walls of self-hatred start to dissipate and become more porous. And then there's more space in our heart mind for that love to be extended to whoever. Exactly. You know, like how do we promote a, a, a sense of connectedness that, that, that brings a wholesomeness and virtue to our relatedness, our personal relatedness and our collective relatedness? And I think this is always a challenge for us as humans. And it does seem right now we have some glaring ways in which we're being challenged. Yes, yes. And that brings to mind Sangha, which is a community, in this particular instance, a community of Buddhist practitioners who are being unified by taking refuge in the Dharma and taking refuge in Buddha. I just want to hover on that word Sangha or community, because what comes to mind for me is this great polarization in our society. Mm -hmm. And this is an oversimplification, but the lack of interaction with people who are different from myself on a political spectrum or even a faith spectrum. And this, of course, is one of the arguments about social media is you're only seeing things that affirm your belief system. And so we don't really have a community of people who, at least I don't, a community of people who I don't share certain values with or certain ideas with. And could you speak a little bit about how that might be harmful? And if you want, you can draw on your own experience in Belfast. We all live in some societal structure, unless you're living as a hermit. And you could even extend it and say, well, in some ways, you're still part of society. But to take it in a more common sense, I grew up in Belfast. I left in the middle of the Troubles, and then I came back just as the Troubles were ending, formally. And it it was a little bit like the moment when the civil rights laws were passed in the 60s. The laws were passed, but it didn't mean that everything in society changed. In fact, uh, there was still vehement racism in society. And something similar in Northern Ireland, except it wasn't racism, it was sectarian discrimination. And, And what I discovered was, talk to as many people of different points of view as possible, And I I find a very interesting thing, two interesting things, actually. It was deeply informative to talk to Catholics who were willing to kill Protestants in promotion of some goodness. And then there was Protestants who were willing to kill Catholics in promotion of goodness. And then all sorts of opinions in between. And having that array of beliefs appreciating that as part of the society. And, and then a phrase I had picked up from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, don't give up on anybody. Everybody's included. And that was very, very helpful on working in peace and reconciliation there. 
and, and all the complexities, the, 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 a society that has that range of beliefs, that range of people trying to pray for salvation and people willing to bomb and kill in, in terms of their version of salvation. And then the other thing that, that arose was somehow when people discovered that I was talking to everybody, it, it sort of opened doors. To have that reputation was a great help. And a great help because your ability to, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, to include everybody, right? Not giving up on everybody. And for myself, when I lived at Tassahara Zen Mountain Center, right, the practice of bowing to people as you pass them. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, I sometimes found myself bowing to people who I didn't necessarily get along with, but still including them, right? Still dropping that idea I have of them and recognizing and respecting them through that physical gesture. Yes. Uh, I was thinking, again, a physical, a physical embodiment of honoring someone just because they're a person, right? It's a physicality. Yes. Our shared humanity. Like in, in Northern Ireland, a friend of mine became the mayor of Belfast. And, and then he said to me, and I want you to be the chaplain. <laughs> it's, it's, I became the chaplain of Belfast, which was kind of wonderful. If, if you have Protestants and Catholics fighting, why not put a Buddhist as the chaplain? <laughs> <laughs> we tried to look at all the different religious denominations that existed in Belfast. And then we had one of each. And then we had 11 chaplains. <laughs> <laughs> Including everybody. <laughs> Let's have one of everything. Let's not say, well, who's right? Why not say everybody's deserving of a voice? It was wonderful. And sometimes just the ability to speak your truth and be listened to without judgment is sometimes enough for people just feeling like, oh, this, I'm being listened to, I'm being uh, accepted. And I feel that just that inclusion in of itself can help alleviate some of the divisions that um, happen in a broad scale and then also in a, a smaller community. Yes. Since we both were raised Catholic, I was raised Catholic in, in Mount Vernon, New York, which is just outside of the Bronx. I'm curious what your understanding is or what your sense of refuge was in Catholicism when you were younger, and maybe how has that changed? I'm sure it has changed as you, as you started to move away from that religion. And has it perhaps, you know, come back full circle to, to where it started? Well, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. In a way, yes, um, I think as children, we don't get involved so much in the details of doctrine. We're more based on a deep feeling. And certainly for me, that deep feeling arose when I was in the church in the early morning, and it was almost deserted. 
Same for me. <laughs> Sitting in the quietude of an empty church with the iconography and the light streaming in from the stained glass window and the smell of frankincense and myrrh, there was the experience of the experience being experienced that dropping yep. out of the head and just being a body, if you will. As, as I got more into Zen, you know, I would think, oh, well, I was doing Zazen in the church. <laughs> you know, I, I was just sitting there experiencing the experience. <laughs> and then the way that was followed by doctrines and, and this is what you should do and this is what you should not do and this is good and this is bad, that turned me off to Catholicism. And, and then, through fortunate circumstances, I started to teach with a Benedictine monk, Brother David Standelrest, and, and he showed me a version of Catholicism that was closer to who I was when I was a six-year-old child sitting in the church, <laughs> and, and not so much to do with, you know, this is good, and this is bad, and this is right, and this is wrong. And, and all these liturgies and dogmas and are, are essential as a lifelong uh, Benedictine monk, Catholic monk. What he showed was, and does still, he's still alive, was this virtuous practice, all-inclusive, mm -hmm. and how that is the heritage of Catholicism. He taught me that the word Catholic could be translated as universal or all-inclusive. Yes, yes, I've heard that definition myself. Yeah. So in a way that was or is this the, the homecoming, right? Returning to your true self, that word refuge in Japanese, kie, returning to your true self. Yes. Whether you're sitting alone or even alone with others in a Catholic church or alone with others in the meditation hall. So just one final question. What's your understanding of salvation and refuge? Are those in your mind, not one, not two? Catholicism focuses on salvation and Buddhism focuses on refuge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What it brings to mind, Heather, is teaching that I heard Brother David give once, and he was saying that the word sin, if I'm remembering correctly, comes from a Latin term, and, and the root meaning of it is separation. That's you know? very interesting. And, and I thought, well, that doesn't that work well with Buddhism? <laughs> and with Adam and Eve. Yes. <laughs> Separating from our true selves in Buddhism. If we think of salvation as giving up the false notion of separation, of, of giving up that preoccupation with me as separate from everything, I, I would say if we allow salvation to be described in that way, I, I think it's synonymous with taking refuge. Well, as you say that, I just feel this... Uh relaxation in my body mind as buddhism teaches as well the salvation within right refuge within yes not seeking refuge or absolution 
outside. And just also what comes to mind just right now is all the people who are displaced who are actually seeking physical refuge. You know, and I think that's the predominant image or understanding of this word refuge are in conjunction with refugees. Yes. Seeking refuge because of war or persecution hmm. or other calamities. And, and you can play on the words and think, well, we're all refugees. We've all been separated from our own innate fundamental capacity for connectedness, for awakenedness. And, and this is the re returning home, returning to something that's innate. I like to end interviews with or conversations with, is there something that you would like for me to have asked or that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Nothing's coming to mind. Thank you for inviting me to do this conversation. It's been quite lovely. I, I was quite moved to hear that you too, as a six-year-old, sat in a big empty church. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we weren't the only six-year-olds <laughs> who yes. sat in an empty church and found that to be more enlightening, if you will, than being preached at from the priest at the lectern. And that also brings to mind just the image of Buddha sitting under the rose apple tree, right? The mm. relaxing when he was seeking so much mm. for something outside himself. And then he had that epiphany of, oh, remember when I was a child sitting under the rose apple tree? Yes. There weren't may, very many or any rose apple trees where I grew up. <laughs> and, and not in Belfast either, huh? No. <laughs> no. Thank you for listening to the Spark Z podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter. Share the spark of Zen, the spark of liberation, the spark of compassion. Thank you for your support.